friends, let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, the strawberries in our fridge molded again. Having a, a one-and-a-half-year-old in the house means that to feed him, our grocery list must be constantly shaped by the understanding that variety is the spice of life and that consistency is key. And so we keep our fridge now constantly stocked with an entire selection of fresh fruits and vegetables, variety enough to entice a young palate so that it can be something different at every meal, while also making sure that there is always something reliable close at hand that's sure to be a favorite which means that our fridge is full all the time. And strawberries are a sure winner with the little guy at any meal, but we just lost the second batch of them in what feels like as many weeks. It turns out strawberries are a delicate fruit, far more perishable and prone to mold than most of their companions in the produce section. Moisture, apparently, is the culprit. There are mold spores just always in the air, ever-present, that spread really quickly as soon as they find somewhere good and wet to grow. And because strawberries are wet and because they soak up moisture from around them, they mold quickly. And so it is easy, or easy, it is normal to expect strawberries to last up to seven days in the fridge, but perhaps as few as three, three days after you buy your strawberries. But once the mold has been spotted in the carton, all is not lost. There are some other fruits, bread, soft cheeses, other types of fruits and vegetables that as soon as you see that spot of mold, you toss it. It's just not good anymore. But berries can be salvaged by slowly and tediously removing every piece of fruit with any sign of mold and every berry that happened to touch another berry that had mold on it. It is long, slow, mindless work that offers plenty of time for contemplation, considering perhaps how much of life is exactly like that. Quick to spoil, but not lost forever. Salvaged, but not with sweeping acts of brilliance, but the slow and faithful work that draws out and protects what is good and what is right. There is a poem by the American writer and social activist Langston Hughes that embraces this metaphor for the world. It's called Tired. It's a really short poem, but one that has had a lasting impact on me. And so he writes, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. It's a poem like the prophets of Israel might have resonated with because over and over in Scripture, the prophets are the ones speaking in a variety of voices but with one consistent theme. Look at the world, they would say. See what is eating away at us, what has spoiled in our hands, what threatens to blight this good creation. See and do not look away. None of the prophets ever wanted to be a prophet so far as we can tell, and who can blame them? Nobody else wanted them to be prophets much either, not when it's so much easier to look past all the troubles that we have brought upon ourselves. But when the Spirit of God opens your eyes and stirs your heart, there's nothing else you can do but to point 
and to preach to a world that needs to know how far it has fallen from God's design for it. This is where all prophecy begins and where we find Micah in the first chapter of his vision. Listen, all you peoples, he says. Pay attention. Look, the Lord is coming out from his place. Oh, oh, God is coming, and the earth quakes to hear it. God is coming, and the mountains will melt away, and the valleys will split in two like wax over a fire, like waters running downhill, because this is not a routine visit. This is not a quick check-in with the boss who happened to be stopping by. This is not a pleasant surprise, but a sudden inbreaking of righteousness and justice among a people long bereft of both. God is coming, and God has a charge to bring against the people. God is now descending from on high to bear witness to the crimes of Jacob and Israel, of the northern and the southern kingdoms. But while the ground under their feet might have melted away, while the rocks themselves fled from the coming Lord, the people have nowhere to go because Micah has made sure of it and has immediately gone to cut off their escape route. Who is responsible for the crime of Jacob, he asks, and then he answers his own question. Samaria, the northern kingdom, capital. Who is responsible for the shrines of Judah, he asks, and then answers his own question. Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom. From the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, the human response has always been to first try to pass the blame on to someone else. And it's only worse in a nation divided, split down the middle, forever separated into two sides that are in constant opposition with one another. That first escape route is always to blame the other. Who is responsible for the downfall of the country? Who is responsible for the problems that plague the people? Who is responsible for the state of the world today? And why are you looking right at me, Micah? Micah does. Micah looks from the countryside where he lives miles and miles away from any capital city of either kingdom. He looks and he stands in between the people divided from one another and demands that they be responsible for themselves. Now, it's true, one side might hold more blame than the other. One side might well have been the instigator. One side might be more corrupted and worse in every measurable way. But insisting that there are good people on both sides, that everyone just mind their own business and watch out for themselves, is more often a technique to dismiss the greater crimes present on one side of the dividing line. And that's not what Micah is doing here. Micah is not trying to paper over anybody's faults. He's trying to make sure that everybody's faults are right out there and in front of them so that both sides can be appropriately considerate and repentant, that both sides can be prepared in heart and spirit to work towards a better day. Because it doesn't matter who is more at fault if we're going to use that to divide ourselves further. What matters is to know that none are without blame. All are in need of grace. And a state of shared repentance is the only way forward. Indeed, it is that the church that doesn't acknowledge sin ever is one that doesn't know of people's need for God's grace. But the church that only ever acknowledges the sin of the other puts themselves in God's place. 
If the church's preaching and teaching only serve to condemn those outside of the building's walls, that is to say that there are the enemies of the faith, they are at fault, the guilty party, the downfall of us, of this nation, of this people. If the church's only teaching and preaching is to condemn those on the outside while comforting those in the pews, then they are worshiping a God made in their image and not one the other way around. The right response to the honest look at the world, to see that there are things eating at the core of who we are and what we are, is repentance. And when you get to repentance, well, then you get to hope. Because Micah is a prophet who always begins with repentance, who makes sure we have a clear look at what there is around us but does not leave us here. And throughout the whole of his vision, the book that bears his name, he oscillates back and forth from repentance and honest looks to hope about what God is doing. It is a poor prophet who does not offer hope. It is a prophet who does not know who God is that does not offer hope. And so Micah to a people who now recognize their crimes, know their faults all too well. Micah points them to Bethlehem, to a leader who is coming. It's David's city. We've heard of David, king over Israel. Except Jerusalem is also David's city. And so Micah makes a choice. There is a David that once came from Bethlehem, youngest of Jesse's son, He didn't look like a king, didn't act like a king, but was raised up as a king. Then there's David from Jerusalem, who became a king, who thrived as a king, who exploited a people as a king, who harnessed and kept power as a king. Micah instructs the people to look, but not to the seat of power, not to where all the greatest kings have come from, but to the poor countryside town of Bethlehem, where there is no power. There are but small people who expect to do small things in life because Micah knows how God works. Micah knows that the greatest things come at God's hands and God works with those who are small and weak and humble. Micah describes this king. He sounds like someone who could go to war, but instead he spends his days in fields with sheep, tending and nurturing and caring for the flock. This is the king, Micah says, to look for. And the people would have heard it known to look for a king, and so they would have looked for the people among them. Eventually they would have bumped up against Jesus and recognized that he came from Bethlehem and was a king like that but it's a prophecy that isn't just about Jesus. It is, but it's more than that. It's about who Jesus was and about how God works with people like that. It's about how God works through the weak and the small and the humble. It's about how God gets things done with the shepherds of the world. And so Micah gives the people a vision of someone to look for, to watch for, to wait for. And they'll be waiting for a while. It's never the easiest thing to do, waiting. 
we never like to do it all that much. Langston Hughes was the one who said in that poem, I am so tired of waiting. Aren't you? And we are in a world that looks like it does. We are tired of waiting. When there are injustices around us, we get tired of waiting. When there are people mistreated and forgotten, we get tired of waiting. When things are not as they should be, who is a prophet to tell us to wait? I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you? But there's different ways to wait. There is a waiting that sits back and says, what will come will come one day. Or there's an active waiting, a waiting that looks more like the moments before birth, when there is pushing and straining and pain and hope. There is a waiting that is active and involved that says, God is doing something and by golly, I want to be a part of it. Micah tells the people, look for the one who is coming and wait as actively and hopefully and involved as you can. Get ready. Prepare your hearts, your spirits, and the world around you. Get honest about who we are and what we have to do to become the people God has called us to be so that when this leader comes, we will be ready. And so... Micah has the people ask, what then shall we do? Shall we bring sacrifices, one, two, twenty, a hundred? Shall we pour out oil, enough oil that will flow down the desert like a river? What shall we do? Shall we come to worship more often than we have before? Shall we offer up Wednesdays as well as Sundays? Shall we say longer prayers more often, read Scripture twice a day instead of once a day? Shall we put up signs in our yard and on our social media profiles to talk about who we are and what we stand for? What shall we do? Micah knows the people, knows all people. And when we get pinned against the wall, we have no one else to blame things on. We still look for ways out, ways to make up the ground and say, that's not us and that was never us. What can we do to prove that we are not like that? What can we give to separate us from those terrible things around us? We see now that we shouldn't have been a part of it. So let us prove that we are not any longer. What sort of rituals can we perform? What sort of things can we do to show the world and God that that is not us? But God never seems very interested in performative religion. Sacrifices made just to prove that we are better than that aren't worth a whole lot. And Micah says, you know what you've been told, what you've been taught, the whole of the Scriptures long. It isn't about the ways that you show off. It isn't about the things that you do except when you live for justice, when you love kindness, and walk humbly with God. It's become almost like a slogan. If you want to find something, some scripture to put up 
on your wall and entryway, you can find this one written a thousand different ways, a thousand different aesthetics. Love justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. It's a great slogan, mission statement. It's just a really hard one. How much easier it would be to find enough oil to pour it down like a river, to go and hunt of sacrifice after sacrifice. This is far more difficult. It's much smaller and much harder. But this, it seems, is how God works with small cities and small people doing what they can with what they have. It doesn't take massive feats of strength and might. It takes faithfulness, humility, and hope. Buckets and buckets of hope to believe that this is how God works. That God does something from nothing. That God gives birth to great things from small places. That the most wonderful things have small roots that build and grow. That grace begins in a moment. In one person and then another. It would be so much easier to do anything else. But it is so much better to seek justice in the ways that we can, in the world around us, with the hands that we have, to love kindness to those people that we can see and touch and hug and help, and to do all things, not for our sake or to prove that we are better than we used to be, but to give glory to the God who has called us to do it and who will work through us. It is small work, separating, finding the good, holding on, and going after the shepherd who walks before us. May we be a people who heed Micah's call and hold on to Micah's hope. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, don't stand up just yet, but there's a hymn coming. And I need to give you some instructions about this hymn because that, that line, that scripture from the end of Micah, love, justice, kindness, walk humbly with God, is one that is all over the place, and it's in a hymn. And I am so excited to sing it, but you should know that it is around. So it's one of those hymns, one of those songs that has multiple parts that you sing on top of each other to, great, to get something, hopefully, beautiful. So for better or for worse, we're going to try it together this morning. So there are three different parts.